nice and loose, figure out how we actually want to go about this. Um, you just gonna leave it recording and just yeah. chop it up later? Yeah, yeah. We'll just we'll just edit it in. But I feel like it's probably the best, best, easiest way. Find a moment that we feel like we uh actually have something get a good yeah, conversation exactly yeah but until <laughs> uh, but until then uh, it's nice just to have this thing just running that's, that's good enough okay well I I did, mean, uh, are we gonna do an intro at all uh eventually i think we just roll uh, it. okay all right roll it we can do one in post if we want to i guess or we can just introduce ourselves right now and just get it going i guess that's yeah, fair yeah, why not obviously why not? For, the, for the listeners so all right we have this uh this idea of this grand no king's network ski trip that we Roped Mr. Flirt Cheap into to come visit with us. It's been sick. Uh, and then everybody didn't come except for Flirt Cheap. So now we have this uh, <laughs> back to the what was the the euphemism for not the Liberty Orgy, but the uh, oh, I guess that was with Jamie because it was a uh, against the mob runs a chain on on Jamie. On, Kane. Uh, yeah, train on <laughs> Jamie. <laughs> uh, so I guess that's not exactly what this is, but we are uh, excited to be here. We've got a little little frostbite, a little sunburn, but feeling great in this fucking snow. It is gorgeous up here. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, we just had a fresh powder day here. It's been fucking gorgy. We were shredding the gnar. Shredding the gnar. Hitting the pow. Hitting the pow pow. <laughs> Flirt got a nice uh, big old pow stash to the face. That was fantastic. Oh, I yeah. Love, <laughs> I, I, I looked over just in time to see his his snowboard dip in and just like a face full of snow <laughs> right after. <laughs> that shit infiltrated three layers of clothing, dude. I had to change everything when I got back here. I was soaked. Oh. Soaked to the Oh, I showed, I showed Matt earlier. I don't think I showed you. Did you see? Oh, my, it's pretty my bad. Belly here? Oh, god damn, dude. <laughs> That's pretty bad. Yeah, I, uh, I shed that layer at lunch. Oh, I think and, I want to uh, open up these windows actually, so we can watch light. it snow. Oh yeah. That's oh, that'd idea. be really nice, man. But yeah, I, uh, I shed that layer, and I, I felt like my stomach is cold. And then when I got out and got in the shower, especially when I hit the hit it with that hot water in the shower, it didn't really hurt, but everything was just like purple, like Mace Windu's lightsaber on my stomach. <laughs> That's always such a bad sign, man. <laughs> I mean, I hate it when I'm like getting warm water on something. I'm like, I should be feeling something right now, and I am not. Yeah, I'm worried about it. It still doesn't hurt right now. It's like there's like a very, very light sting, almost like I'm gonna have a pimple, except it's on my entire lower stomach. Uh, but yeah, it's like I, I worry for when we try to sneak in that hot tub or the sauna later. I might really be regretting losing that shirt underneath. Really? You thinking hot tub today with this uh, dump fest outside? Dude, Absolutely. Nothing There's nothing better. better. Than hot tub in the snow. There's nothing better. This you guys is... know how much of a baby I am. My feet are going to be freezing. I'm going to be screaming the oh, whole time. Oh, just wait till we lock the door. <laughs> <laughs> I'm pretty upset when you missed that off. And you have to walk all the way around because Logan was kind enough to leave that one open. I'm going to make sure that you have to walk all the way around the house. You know what? <laughs> this feels like a violation of the NAP. I <laughs> 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 can't accept that. It very well, it very well could be, honestly. <laughs> but I don't care. <laughs> I think it authorizes have... me to use deadly force. <laughs> <laughs> did have quite an adverse reaction. For those of you who haven't been in the hot tub in the snow with us, uh, we we kind of go out there and like, man, it's, it's really cold out here in the snow. This hot tub feels nice. And then finally, uh, a Flirt came outside and just screamed like a banshee as he cannonballed <laughs> into the hot tub. <laughs> Apparently is not uh, all that well adapted to the cold weather. Yeah, I'm not acclimated and I never will be. I intend <laughs> to stay near the ocean and in the sun for as long as my life lasts. No, come on, move up here, man. Let's just let's just move the gang to, <laughs> to New Mexico. You couldn't get used to this, man. Look, so for those that can't see, we're looking out. Um, we're in a makeshift uh, studio. Uh, we're in a nice ski in, ski out. Um, there's some clients of mine that were gracious enough to let us stay here, and we're watching uh, we're watching the snow. 
It's probably got, I don't know, five, five, six inches on the deck, and it's coming down pretty nice. I'm saying that's even on top of what was already there. Is that I mean, what I'm five or six inches looks like? Uh, I mean, it looks, for, for the record, looks yes. pretty long for six. We could <laughs> go ask Shelby. She'd probably tell us. But that's exactly why women are terrible at measuring distances, um, mm. because they've been told this is six inches their entire life. <laughs> well, the perspective when it's coming straight at you is hard to tell exactly how long it is. <laughs> I guess it does matter, the, uh, the angles. Okay. So um, what we're doing with this episode, uh, hopefully we, I, I would like to, while we're still here, crank out a, a more serious episode um, because we still have, uh, we still have several nights left together. And to apologize to you guys from the Against the Mob podcast side, uh, we definitely let this week snowball on us preparing for this trip. And I'm also, I get to move basically the day I get back. Uh, so <laughs> we, we had some uh, things that came up more prudent than podcasting, unfortunately. So. Yeah, it's fair. It's, it's no, but but um, this is, uh, if you're listening to this now, you're going to hear the inaugural episode of Against the Mob After Hours, where you get to listen to Logan, myself, and Flirt talk about things that are not so much political, but just things that we find interesting and just have a nice random conversation. Um, because right. we're, we we're so apt to just derail in the middle of a podcast <laughs> anyway. So we figured like, let's, let's make this informal. Let's just have a, a regular, let's just make a full podcast episode of us, um, derailing ourselves. Right. Right. It kind of makes sense. I mean, it's something we've always, uh, we love to have these weird conversations, whether it's talking about the darkest corners of the internet's conspiracy theories or the people that the, the internet produces, or just the, the world around us without the, uh, I mean, of course we're going to have our libertarian lens most of the time, but uh, they're, they're more interesting things to talk about, and I feel like Matthew and I are narcissistic enough to believe that you guys want to hear us talk about them. Well, you know, if we want to kick this off, uh, we were having an interesting conversation on the lift a couple hours ago today um, where Matthew was letting us know that there are certain resorts that still discriminate against snowboarders, don't allow them in. Um, you know, Mike Hyand is not allowed in certain places. Or, as, or as I feel about it, the only true resorts. <laughs> <laughs> I was, I was going to say, it's like the way it should be. It's the current year, good sirs. <laughs> I should be allowed to go wherever I want and ruin y'all's moguls. Nope. I think, I think a private business has the right to bar you out. And if they don't want to let your, your knuckle-dragon come Kind in, well then so be yeah, it. Maybe if you, a bunch of stoner snowboarders, could get your shit together enough to start your own resort, then you keep the skiers out of that. Uh, you know what? I'm going to invoke the American with Disabilities Act. I mean, yeah, we might be a little slow. Yeah, we might be uh, not the best people around here, but you guys can't be making these lifts that only people with skis can ride on. That's horrible. You know, the stand-up lifts, how, what am I supposed to do? What am I supposed to do? I'm going to catch an edge on that thing and like be dragged along on my face for like 30 yards. And oh, then, I know what you're saying. Those surface lifts, yeah, the, exactly. the little toe straps they're, they're only made for skiers man like well, whoever invented that was a racist probably don't be a snowboarder <laughs> no. the true master race those of, uh, those of two boards between their legs while they're skiing <laughs> on the mountain i will say thank you for your participation logan um for for my uh under under your leg stunt today oh yeah that was impressive honestly uh, matthew had me do the the a frame with my legs as wide as i could and i had i mean maybe 30 Mississippi's of being able to hold that with my hip flexors on my fat body and Matthew <laughs> was able to sit down on his skis and ski under me it's pretty cool a lot of people liked it and this wasn't like a slow speed stunt either like they said they were going to do it I thought they were fucking joking we were going like 25 miles an hour maybe and uh, Matt fucking split Logan's legs, just went right under his dick, uh, <laughs> and neither of them fell down. Under's not exactly right. Kind of threw my dick, if we're being honest. <laughs> I was wearing a helmet, so I couldn't feel it on the top of my head. <laughs> just a strange smudge on the goggles. Well, 
there's always next time, boys. <laughs> I appreciate you uh, including me in that. Like, I had really anything to do with that trick other than just being able to ski with my legs three feet apart. Uh, that's pretty impressive, though, because, I mean, you could have caught an edge. You could have, like, needed to turn in one direction or the other. It did cross my mind. I was uh, There was a moment where I was like, man, I hope he pulls this off quickly because I'm getting nervous about <laughs> I, I I have developed a very specialized form of skiing where I just try not to touch the snow for the entire day. And if I can just stand up the whole time, that's great for me. It's much less uh, wear and tear on the knees, a lot uh, easier than having to push off the side of the mountain and stand back up. So I, that's really what I try to tailor my skiing type to, is just uh, shred those greens real hard, but never really eat, eat shit. There's nothing better than coming back and all of your ski gear is still dry. Like, I had to leave all my shit in the garage because of... Uh, <laughs> no, no, bring, the, bring that in. Get it dry today. Because it's going to be cold. It's going to freeze tonight. It's going to be miserable there. tomorrow. So bring it inside. It was covered in snow. Okay. Well, it's, it fine. it's fine. Defrost a bit. Yeah. I'm at least trying to let it like uh, drain off a little bit. It's, it's, fro it's frozen out there. The garage in. is cold. That's uh, Yeah, those, you're right. Science beginner lessons of, of uh, skiing is bring the boots inside. I have learned that one. Bring, always bring <laughs> the boots inside. <laughs> Not fun to get up at eight in the morning and try to get psyched for skiing when you're a little bit hungover and stick your toes in that chilly boot. Oh, dude. Mm. And I, 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 after... After all of the times my feet have gotten wet, I've learned that that is, that is the thing that shocks my morale to zero. Like, <laughs> as soon as my feet are cold and wet, I'm over, it doesn't matter what I'm doing. I can be having a fantastic day, but as soon as they're cold and wet, I'm done. I'm going home. It's the same as, like, if my headphones die. I'm no longer having a good time. <laughs> That's the end of it. You got to have the music. I go, yep. I had to. I'll pack up and go I home. I had to put mine up at lap. one point because they have that annoying feature where for like the last five minutes, it'll tell you every 30 seconds of the song, like it's a, a DJ Khaled remix. It has to pause it and go low battery mode. <laughs> and it was like, why can I just listen to the goddamn music till these things die? Yeah, just let it die. Cause then it's like, they're stealing the last, what? 20 minutes of yeah. battery time from you. Yeah. I got to listen to this. Like I, I'm not going to charge it right now. It's theft. This is a violation of the NAP <laughs> who, who invented them. I mean, they must have a name and address, right? It's time for us point. to go visit them. Let's fight back against these, uh, these big tech bastards. So yeah. let's see, skier only. I'm I'm trying to figure out what the other one is because I know that there's two two resorts in Utah that do not allow. Um, it's Alta and um, Utah would make sense. That's, it's, that's yeah, it's it's Alta and uh, and Deer Valley are two A lot that, of that do not allow snowboarders in. Ah, uh, and then are the rest all East Coast uh, with all the the wasps up there? Well, <laughs> Taos used to be one. Um, Mad River Glen is the other one, and it's in Ver uh, Vermont. Is wasp another uh, euphemism for white people that I don't know? Uh, yeah, it is. It yeah, is. What is a wasp? One. I actually don't remember what it stands for. Um, I usually use it to kind of make fun of the people who idolize like Harvard, Stanford, not Stanford, uh, Harvard, MIT, all of that nonsense up there. It's just kind of like white as snow people. Uh, yeah, it's like the the legacy people where it's like you know they've been in the same city for like three hundred years by now, and like none of them had the temerity to move after their initial relative came to the U.S. And they're just kind of like <laughs> dug in, you know, like buildings named after them. It's like the like, conversation we had about like, why are there people living in Cleveland or Buffalo, New York? What are you doing? When you oh. see 40 inches of snow on the ground, don't you be like, what, what are we, why are we doing this? There's nothing fun here to do with the snow. There's We're nothing to do with it. it. Exhaust covered black snow. I was about yeah, to say, yeah, all the all snow is brown. <laughs> <laughs> don't eat brown snow. Right. <laughs> All the snow is brown. All the snow is brown. Is that a depressing tale from your days in Buffalo? 
<laughs> Wait, did you did you ever live in Buffalo? No, never. Oh, okay. Never. Oh, I don't know why I, I thought like, you lived in Buffalo. You guys hear me talking about how cold it is here and how I need to stay in the warmth. Uh, you did go. Uh, you said Baltimore though at one point in time. That's all for work travel, man. Oh, okay, work travel. Fair. Yeah, enough. I would never go there for fun. I uh, actually, I'll take it back. Um, no, I'd never go to Baltimore for fun. <laughs> I had to think about that one. <laughs> How about uh, since you disclosed to us that you are a Vikings fan, would you ever do Vikings is an outdoor stadium, right? No, they built a new stadium. They have a dome. They went to the dome. Okay, it's so the nicest stadium in the NFL, actually, in my opinion. Oh, I mean, have you been to Jerry World? Have yeah. You, I'm going to be a Cowboys so grandstander here. Well, look, I don't want to dox myself, <laughs> but uh, there was a time when I lived n- right in... Um, Okay, Jerry World took my Walmart. Let's say that. <laughs> like, they uh, they destroyed it. Like, that Walmart had to move, and that was the place where I bought my groceries when I was a freshman. You know, that'd be a pretty Jerry Jones move, honestly, is just to put a Walmart inside the stadium. <laughs> <laughs> Actually, like Maybe that. Maybe an H-E-B, but, you know. <laughs> do, you think, uh, do you think that they were given fair price for that eminent domain that he pulled? I'm actually really—that's that's one thing that is interesting. So let's talk about eminent domain and how this, this billionaire was able somehow to convince the city— to seize a bunch of property from from people that had been there, give them quote unquote fair market value so he can build a big ass stadium. I think that's pretty crazy. Convince the city in quotation marks. Yeah. With with a, those palms with a nice big donation. <laughs> Yeah, I think Walmart came out of it fine because when I say that was my Walmart, there was another one like five minutes in the other direction. So it's not like I was like really lacking. But uh, for well, the I people mean, whose everybody kind of has a special connection to the place they lose their virginity. So <laughs> <laughs> was it though? Was it in the bathroom or the parking lot? Uh, no, it was like five minutes before my shift was about to begin. Just, <laughs> you stack up enough cocoa pebbles, nobody can see what's going on behind. <laughs> No, but, you know, Dane was very gentle um, back in the staff room. <laughs> <laughs> oh, Dane is uh, not up there on the, the strong list of guys you'd want your daughter to lose her virginity to, I think. <sighs> I don't know. I feel like with a name like Dane. Okay, wait. We got to think about this in generational terms. Um, a millennial named Dane. Nah. A Gen Xer named Dane? Uh, that dude's probably been through some trials and tribulations. I'm sure he's okay. Could be the main. Could be the main Dane. Mr. Cook likes him pretty young, so could be the Dane of Danes. Sir Dane himself. (laughs) What is Dane Cook doing these days? Uh, Mostly, he's uh, he's trying to kind of get the the comedy thing going again, but I think he's really marred in legal fees because I think his, if I remember the story right, his brother was his manager, and I think Dane Cook comes from like a strong stock of white trash. (laughs) <laughs> and his brother just <laughs> dug deep into his gypsy jeans and just decided to steal all of his money immediately when he became oh, famous. That's so sad. And so he's been going through that, and, and yeah, that's been a rough thing. I think he even didn't really want to come out with it at first because it was his brother, and it was like, man, I really mm-hmm. don't want to. But at some point, you're like, he did steal hundreds of millions of dollars from me. Yeah, it's tough. I mean, I feel like people really should be really careful about doing business with family. Um, cause there's always the urge to just not do the due diligence, not sign all the contracts you need to mm. not protect yourself. Cause like, Oh, it's my brother. Why would we need to sign this? Why would we need to sign non-complete? Why would we need to have an NDA? Well, you know, just let him do it. And then, you know, three weeks later, you know, your IP is gone cause someone sold it. And, um, you know, you would never be in that situation if it was just like a business partner. That is a weird thing that when you're that close to someone, you will, attribute things to them that you wouldn't attribute to any other human, like the ability to overcome, like how many of us, if our house is getting foreclosed on, 
would be strong enough men not to take that money that was within our ga- grasp, especially if we thought we could pay it back before anybody would notice. Mm-hmm. It is a tempting thing that a lot of human beings don't have the the uh, fortitude to forego, and we understand that in any... You could know a guy your whole life as a great banker, and you wouldn't necessarily trust him in that set kind of manner, but if it's your brother, for some reason we, for we, we are willing to waive the same kind of things we would never... Uh, expect another human being to live up to. Yeah. And when we think about the future, we're always thinking in best case scenarios. So, you know, it's like, well, when my brother is rich, he's not going to steal from me. It's like, okay, but what (laughs) if he doesn't get rich? What if he has a gambling problem? What if he likes to do ketamine in the girl's locker room and just hasn't told you yet? Like, (laughs) you don't know what's going to happen with him. And, um, you know, we always envision the future as this bright, shiny place where like nothing bad ever happens. I mean, if everyone listening now digs back to like 20, 2017 and thinks to themselves, what would the year 2022 look like? What sort of examples might they have been thinking about in 2017? Definitely positive. Yeah. I definitely would not have imagined this type of inflation, this type of shit show on the geopolitical might, stage. Might depend on who you ask because there are certain people who were so afraid of the Cheeto president that they would have thought that maybe the... The, the world Armageddon that was going to happen. Well, right it's, it's upon point. us. <laughs> right. Right. Yeah. yeah, that's that fun. I keep saying that, like, never a better time to be an anarchist right now whenever somebody's like, well, we need government for these things. I'm like, I don't know. Do you do you think that we would have organized a potential World War III with free people trading amongst each other? Because I don't know if we'd have ever <laughs> gotten that large of an apparatus to point nukes at one another. Yeah, probably not. But there's always, like, the big question where we're like, well, we're going to be anarchists over here. And then, you know, um, Steely McGrapeface over in whichever country <laughs> we're going to pretend is not being named here just decides, like, cool, I see you. Um, I'm going to invade anyways. And, and then what? You know, and maybe that's the, uh, the gun behind every blade of gra- grass argument that keeping a well-armed society is what kind of prevents that. I think that that's kind of true to a certain extent with governments anyway. I mean, if you have a strong government, certainly that staves off invasion. But if you have a shitty, weak government that doesn't have a strong military and doesn't have a strong economy... You're just as susceptible to get invaded as any free people are, yeah. especially if you don't have arms in the, the public. Well, it sounds like, and I'm not even joking when I say this, as anarchists, we have a bit of an obligation to just arm every single country in the world. I mean, I don't want to worry about Taiwan. I would love it if it was just like, here's a, I don't know, a Mossberg pump. You know, right. just just some like good old American, like a 1911. Uh, we're going to have a revolver. And, still. <laughs> yeah, like it, your revolver is never going to jam. Uh, you know, forget <laughs> about it, like breaking in half at the breach. Um, you know, what if everyone in Taiwan was armed? Would we be worrying about China invading? Yeah, or even the, the next step. Not. I mean, the number one way to keep boots off the ground, especially if you were uh, planning on going off the, the petrodollar and screwing up America's system, is to have nuclear capability. We've seen that where you you give it up and here come the boots on the ground. So there's that interesting tactic as well is like, is it worth considering to give everybody the kind of capability for mutually uh, insured destruction? Or do you worry about the the wild wire in there and get his hands on them? I think that's a that's a really tough one because you you run this, you know, it's um, I always think of the Bertrand Russell quote. It's it's easy to expect a man to walk a tightrope for five minutes. It's less um, it's less um, expected to have him walk the same tightrope for seventy years or two hundred years. And he was talking about nuclear weapons. And I think that when you start um, when you start the plur- pl- 
pro- proliferation. Sorry, that's, that's kind of a hard word sometimes. Long day on the slopes. Um, when when you when when everybody has one, it definitely increases that whole mutual assured destruction to where you think that you're not going to have this. You know, it's not going to be as um, as prevalent. However. It's just one more wild card that you have to deal with, right? And so right now there's how many nuclear-armed countries? So there's America, there's the U.K., there's France. Um, South America gave theirs up. So Israel is four. Pakistan is five. India is six. North Korea is seven. China is eight. Russia is nine. They've added Belarus as well. Okay, so now we have 10. That's a good point. So, I mean, so you're looking at less, it may be a dozen nuclear-armed states. And I think that... If you had 200 nuclear-armed states, it seems like the chance of that nuclear incident definitely increases from a non-zero. You know, it's like it's always it's always a non-zero chance that Russia nukes Ukraine or strikes the West. But let's say that um, there's a regime change in some shithole country in Africa, as Trump would say, <laughs> and this guy decides that well. I now have the nuke preemptive strike on your neighbor, right? And so I think that the more nukes you have in the world, it's probably a less safe world, but it's also a safer, you know, it, it, it's a really interesting it's, paradox. Uh, it's balancing the field a little bit so that the, the lesser have more power, but it, does, it doesn't necessarily make it safer. Yeah, because if you really want to swing up, that's a good way. If you want to punch above your weight class, well, that's a really good way to do so. You know, Matt, before you started talking, I disagreed. And you changed my mind, especially with the quote, because I was thinking in very short terms. You know, if you think about in the moment, you know, in our last episode, we had talked about, oh, what if we just sent uh, Zelensky the button for 500 nukes? And then, you know, right after that, um, Putin, you know, puts nukes in Belarus to protect them in the short run from the U.N., but when you start talking about this tightrope and extending it into the future, it's almost selfish of us to think, well, we can solve this short-term problem now by giving this X person nukes. And maybe that person is good. They're not going to do anything horrible, but they'll, you know, they'll have the right level of business acumen to be able to make a credible threat to where someone might not want to push them. But then what sort of world are we leaving to our grandkids in 60 years when you know, they're one election away from having someone completely new in control of those nukes? And it is awfully short-sighted for us to think about, you know, what is the most expedient solution for us in the moment, when in the long term, we might just be dooming people to uh, scrounging around for cockroaches and whatever else survives <laughs> nuclear fallout. Trading dollars hey, for know, good if, water. <laughs> I don't know if you guys know this, but if you're allergic to shrimp, you're typically also allergic to cockroaches because they're so close genetically. And that grosses a lot of people out. Uh, but personally, as a foodie myself... Uh, it makes me kind of wonder what those Madagascar cockroaches taste like if you strike mm-hmm. a couple of them on a skewer. It's wow. a great thing to say as we're about to have some ceviche later. Mm-hmm. Yeah, right. <laughs> some delicious sea cockroaches. Yeah. There's a, Dan Carlin's got a really great um, <clears throat> question posed at, one of, uh, at the start of one of his uh, podcast episodes, and he talks about uh, how, when a, uh, how you measure a society being able to handle its weapons technology, and you never win that. You never win you only lose, right? Because at any given point, you have the ability to to exterminate the planet, especially with nuclear weapons, specifically with nuclear weapons. And there's really no, hey, we finally managed it, guys. Let's put this let's put this one behind us. It's the sort of Damocles that always lives with you. And the only time that you figure out when you the, when you can't 
handle your weapons technology is when the the globe is on fire. I almost said earlier, like, I wonder if it's better because if you just hand every state leader recognized in the world right now nukes, some of those guys probably don't understand nukes 100%. They don't understand the capability. So I'd wondered, kind of way you are talking, if it would made more sense to, uh, you know, allow somebody to develop it, test it, and then realize <laughs> the destructive capability they had. But then, as you said that exact thing about, you know, what happens when you have the new leader, either your dictator dies or you have a new election and you have this entirely new regime. I mean, we have leaders right now who are like, yeah, gung ho about going into war because none of them have ever shed any blood. None of them have ever, you know, they've never really had any consequences from war, uh, except for getting obscenely rich. I was about to say their bank accounts getting fatter. (laughs) And it is also interesting to think about the, uh, the game theory of a nuke. Um, if you build it and it doesn't get used, you're kind of wasting the economic output for it. And if you do build it and there's like a guarantee it's going to get used, then there's also kind of that, again, sort of Damocles that you're talking about. I mean, with each nuke that is built, is there kind of an implicit guarantee that it will likely be used? Or at some point just, um, you know, after like 30, 40 years, they become terrible to maintain. They're more cost expensive, cost, they're cost ineffective at some point. To the point where they're better off just being disposed of in whichever way that happens. And I'm not like a nuclear scientist. So, Like if you're Russia, you lose six nuclear-capable submarines and you just dump them off the coast of Florida whenever they're mm-hmm. too much to deal with. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, that's but I, I don't. That's that's one of those obscure things that I don't think a lot of people realize how many broken arrow incidents America has had. I mean, there's definitely like we've dropped nukes out of planes in Spain that did not go off. Fortunately, we've lost nukes in the ocean. Um, my my gut tells me it's over twelve broken uh, broken arrow incidents, and that's just America. You also wonder about okay, is a broken arrow specifically a nuclear incident? It's mm-hmm. missing nuclear material, and sometimes <laughs> this is a bomb. Sometimes it's just um, fissile material that's like radioactive. That could um, it's weapons grade. Yeah, right. it's all weapons grade. Which I'm sure some gets lost, but some of it too is like that. Uh, when at the the FBI's budget one year, where they're like. Yeah, we have a, a dark budget that we're allowed, or CIA rather. We have this dark budget that we're allowed to spend without disclosing where we spent it. And then we also exceeded that. So we also have like several billion dollars that's just missing money. We just, oh, oh we lost it. Like, oh. We don't have that good of accountants here. We're all spies. We're not really accountant people. <laughs> so uh, sometime last year, I made a post about this. I'm going to pull some examples of what broken arrow incidents look like here in the U.S. Um, so in 2018... Um, plutonium and cesium was stolen from a rental car in San Antonio. They left it in the back seat at a hotel they were staying in, um, which is crazy. Um, most that of this, junkie got so much smack out of that uranium. Yeah, can you imagine? <laughs> uh, um, most of this isn't too crazy. So as of 2012, there was six tons of radioactive material that was missing. And the, the way this happens is sounds they... Like a lot. It sounds like a lot, but like they account for it, and um, then they account for how much they have on the other end. And sometimes this is like you're pushing material through a pipe, and there's going to be a little bit left in the pipe because not all of it's coming out. It's kind of like how you have pipes here in this house, and they're all full of water. And technically, you've paid for them since they've passed the meter in your house, but you haven't showered with them yet. So like you know, you're like, oh, we're missing water. They've stolen from us, but not really. Um, but then there's also other issues where here's the worst one. Um, <laughs> In 2004, a 45-pound block of highly enriched uranium in military stockpiles was found to be missing. They're actually not sure when it went missing because they didn't look for it until <laughs> 2004. I don't know if they wanted it uh, for something, but that's a huge amount of enriched uranium. So how much does it take to actually make a bomb? 
I mean, like, I know that I know for a dirty bomb, you need a significantly smaller amount. But if you're talking about like a weapons, like a like a conventional nuclear weapon, is 45 pounds enough? Because I feel like that is. I feel like that's more than sufficient. Well, it's probably way more than sufficient. But there's also the other question, too. Do you just want a dirty bomb that where it's going to be like releasing radiation after it explodes? Or do you want like an actual an nuclear actual reaction? Nuclear weapon, yeah. um, and I think most of this stuff when it goes missing is if someone were to want to do something with it, it would be dirty bombs. Because it's not it's like... the easiest way. Yeah. Not everyone has like the level of lab that you would need to and create like an actual nuke itself. Right. And I mean, potentially it could be scarier if somebody's only objective is to do damage. And a dirty bomb does dirty the trick. Dirty a good way to do it. fucks up an area for a minute. Yeah, here's also another interesting stat. So um, the International Atomic Energy Association um, in 2017 ran a study, and they found 270 instances where nuclear material was sold on the black market from <laughs> 1993 to 20, 2016. Holy shit. Um, and there's only been two credible dirty bomb attempts ever since 1980. I mean, hey, Joe so, Biden did say, I mean, you guys think you can really take on the federal government with guns? <laughs> so maybe <laughs> maybe this is a, another say, Joe Biden's fault. That he did say that. <laughs> I had to buy some enriched uranium because Joe Biden told me I couldn't take him on. Right. I don't want him in my backyard. <laughs> it does beg the question, what are people doing with this stuff? Like, is this just some rich dude who, like, wants to, like, open up his basement and be like, look, I've got some enriched uranium There's down some here. Like, is want to be Tony Stark it? with uh, building his own arc generators out of uranium in his basement. Now we're talking. It's going to be some real sad catastrophe in the next couple of years. It's either that or, I mean, you can go one of two ways, right? When you're talking about like, uh, we often talk, we often talk about the future in a very positive light. When it comes to this, I think that the human inclination is to assume the worst with what they're going to be doing with it. Because I, I feel like somebody who's just buying up uranium does not have the best intentions. Um, because, it's not, it's not a very good deterrent when you're talking about, oh, well, I'm just going to well, build maybe, a small nuclear, tactical nuclear weapon. Maybe they're trying to weapon. generate reusable energy for all of us. <laughs> and, which is fair, <laughs> which, is, which, is, which is a possibility, but it's just interesting, though, that back to what, good uh, way to back to what Flirt government. was saying, uh, <laughs> back to what Flirt was saying, uh, that when we look at the future, it's often positive, but then we have these weird biases where when it comes to people, we tend to give our family a lot more leeway than they deserve. But then when it comes to anyone else, we mm -hmm. often just assume that their intentions are Especially negative. a foreign entity who doesn't believe in the same God you believe in or has a different culture than you have. Yeah, we definitely demonize that. We're very tribal. So if we want to talk about some positive stories here, um, in 2011, a <coughs> Swedish man was arrested for trying to build a nuclear reactor in his kitchen. Um, I don't know what he intended to do with the energy he created, but he wasn't trying to build a bomb. And this it blender like, just doesn't have enough juice. Yeah, and apparently he also had radioactive radium, americium, and uranium. I don't know where he got it from. Probably one of those black Probably markets. Probably one of the sales. black markets. Yeah, most definitely. I mean, so. there's something to that. I, I'm a big proponent of that. I think that the, the answer to a lot of our energy problems or... Uh, if you're really worried about the, the climate change, then I, I doubt that that's going to come from taxing the fuck out of us versus somebody coming up with a, a genuine solution in the marketplace like that. Yeah. Okay. Let's talk about nuclear power then. Right. I think that's a, I think that's a good little segue since we're just like shooting from the hip on all of this. Like we don't have, like we don't have any notes. We're just all we're freelancing this entire thing. Um, I know that Americans, we have a bad. Well, one, the. The stigma around nuclear power is definitely damned because of Chernobyl, 
that was a terrible, terrible, terrible thing. Um, and even in America, we have Three Mile Island, which was not nearly as catastrophic as Chernobyl, but it still gives Americans that bad taste of nuclear power. Whatever happened to the uh, Fukushima? Oh, I think it's still spewing massive just amounts of radia- radiation up. into the ocean. Just I think I think it just prolonging the generations and generations of damaged Japanese men that make hentai porn. <laughs> yeah, yeah, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, nuclear is interesting because I mean, there's a lot of issues that people don't really consider. So the biggest exporter of uranium uh, right now is Kazakhstan by a wide margin. Um, I think they export about eight to nine times more than the second largest exporter. Um, and Canada and Australia are number two and three, which are hmm. allies of the West. So at least we have a reliable source there. But then after that, it's like Russia, China, Kyrgyzstan, like the top 10. It's a bunch of countries that are like way outside of our sphere. So there is a bit of, um, I would say, instability when we start leaning on these foreign markets. I mean, for instance, um, we had uh, there was a statement, I think yesterday or the day before, from the Biden office where they said they're not going to enact sanctions on Russian uranium because it's being used right now by us. <laughs> and, um, you know, Interesting. It's if not- you want to buy some, some uh, Russian dolls that fit inside of each other, you're no longer allowed to do that due to sanctions. But if the government wants some uranium, well, we can, we can go ahead and give Russia some money. It's a fair point. They love cutting out these exclusions for themselves. I've heard that's a really uh, an issue, too, with all of the drive for us to move to electric cars, because I think Russia is the number three exporter of uh, lithium in the world as well. Yeah. And when you have a country like Russia, which has, the, I think, the largest landmass of any country in the world, mm-hmm. you know, you kind of have to expect that they're also going to be leading or at least in the top five in exports for a lot of raw materials just because. You know, shit that you dig up from the ground. Russia's got a lot of ground. Yeah, it's all luck. We've said that many times at the the cattle ranch where I spent many a summers wrangling cattle and building fence and thinking about, man, if grandpa bought this land like 200 miles south, I'd be an oil man. And uh, I wouldn't be doing this podcast because I'd have way too much money. <laughs> no, you would be doing this podcast if you had way too much money. What else is there to do, man? <laughs> I have to say that's, that's the only thing to do at that point is just podcast five days a week. <laughs> that's might be fair. Yeah, I mean, uh, nuclear power is an interesting one because it's, um, you know, it's being picked up by people who are responding to the left's push on environmentalism, um, where they want to say like, oh, well, look, you guys want renewables. We've got the perfect renewable in nuclear. And they're not wholly wrong. Um, There's a lot of promising technology coming. I mean, there's a bunch of right now experimental thorium reactors. And before anyone wants to invest in like a large scale thorium reactor, they want to see like five, 10 years of data from like a 10 or 20 megawatt site first uh, before you're putting three or four million into development, both so you can cut down on cost and also take some lessons learned for the next one. And, you know, we're about four or five years into that cycle. So late 2020s, we could probably see some large-scale thorium reactors come out. And, um, you know, thorium is a lot easier to come by than uranium and Isn't plutonium. is thorium also... There were, I think there were two different elements that we pa- passed on in favor of uranium research in our government simply because uranium is the one that went boom as well. Mm-hmm. They're like, you know, we're going to pour all this money into this energy sector research, but really, we want to fuck Japan up pretty bad. Yeah, well, I think that's that's one of the most... I think that is probably one of the most fascinating subjects of modern history is the development of the nuclear 
arsenal and then how and how it shaped the human course right because once once the nuclear genie is out in the bo- out of the bottle it's almost impossible to put it back in and what was really interesting is during the early i guess you know so america develops the trinity test that's july of 19 uh, 1945 we then uh, nuke uh, Hiroshima and Nagasaki, which interestingly enough, the uh, the second bomb dropped on Nagasaki. It was not the intended target that day, but um, they you know they have criteria. One, they've armed the nuclear bomb, so you you can, you don't get to land. <laughs> Somebody's that, blowing up. You don't, you don't get to land with this bomb still in your bomb bay. That's like that's not an option. And so so the pilots actually had this criteria of what was needed to drop the bomb. And I can't remember the original target city, but there was um, there was too much cloud cover and they couldn't actually verify where the where the target uh, where the bomb was actually going to drop, and so they had to scratch it. And so they went to the second one, and it also had too much cloud cover. And so they, you know, and they're just going down the list of cities the that thing, they Nagasaki can, used to brag about their beautiful sunny days. <laughs> and, and and they're just going down and and they're just going down the list, and the third's Nagasaki. And so Welcome they, you know, sunny, so, sunny so they just didn't, you know, they're flying over and they're all talking in in the plane, and it's, okay, well, cloud cover, well, it looks like we have enough. It has this much military capacity. It has this much industry population size x amount like it you know it checks all the boxes and they're like all right good enough and boop and there it is um but that, that's a little side sorry for that how many side tangent japanese but, people know that same story and had grandfathers in the first two cities that are like man <laughs> we almost didn't get to be people yeah and it, well it's wild because it's such an indiscriminate it's such an indiscriminate weapon but it's also it's, gross and just that clearly the tactic there is maximum amount of civilian it's it's maximum but (laughs) to be fair the allied bombing campaign was not humane and and moral before that operation meeting house um there was this it was a nighttime raid on tokyo where the second in command hap arnold of at that time it's the united states army air force um before it's at before they're two separate branches um hap arnold was um allegedly caught saying that if we can't if we can't destroy their wartime capabilities then we'll burn all the workers while they sleep and so they ended up firebombing a a a known residential area of tokyo that is that they knew from intelligence that was primarily like the construction was going to go up and so they had the bombers drop incendiary bombs in a nice circle around it so when it all caught on fire it would suck in and it ended up killing like a hundred thousand people that night but that's one of those things that we don't ever talk about because well that was just conventional bombing um now i'm so off topic i remember what i was actually going to say um when back to the nuclear genie there was a very small window where america had the monopoly on the nuclear weapons and they in America at you know at the newly formed UN and all of these new peace things are talking about well this is such a terrible weapon and we need to make sure that we get all of the the material that can make these and put them in a single location under international watch and Russia's like yeah that's great how about you give up yours first and we go mm, well I don't know because it was a hard it was a hard 
card to give away because, you know, it's 1945. The Soviets are staying a little bit longer in Iran than they were supposed to. Truman says, get out, I'm going to nuke you. Three days later, the Soviets are out of Iran. And so that's a very, like, that's a very hard card to put back in the deck for the betterment of humanity. And then, you know, 1949 pops around, the Russians develop a nuclear bomb, and it, we're off to the races. Right. Yeah, it is a sad thing to see that. <laughs> Just, and it's that that power begots power, and, and government doesn't give it up. That once they had that nuclear uh, capability, uh, and everybody in that room, I'm sure, believed in their heart of hearts that this was for the good of humanity, because we're here, we're the good guys. There are nightmares in every country outside of ours in the world. Sure, we do some messed up stuff, and we steal money from our people yearly uh, in the form of taxes and, and redistribute it to our our relatives and friends and and cronies and and lobbyists, but. There are some real bad guys out there, and if we don't make sure that communist Russia doesn't take over the entire world, then it we're, it's just going to be us against everyone at some point. Well, it's, uh, sorry, go ahead. Oh, I mean, I was going to take it a little off topic here. I mean, you brought up the concept that like everybody believes that they're doing good in their heart of hearts. I don't believe that's true. Uh, you know, there's definitely plenty of people who are miserable or who feel like they're not building towards the betterment of humanity. I mean, you know, after watching the nuke actually get dropped on Nagasaki and Hiroshima, and it's also not their fault. Like, they didn't even know what they were building for the most part. Everything was so compartmentalized. But after the fact, I'm sure a lot of them probably felt some sort of way about maintaining their position there. But at the same time, you have specialized skills. You have job security for life to just keep building nukes. I'm sure there were a lot of people who stayed despite believing that they were creating a net negative. Um, you know, a lot of people hold cognitive, cognitive dissonance in interesting ways. Um, you know, and obviously when you talk about cops, it kind of comes out in this sense of, um, I got to get home to my family, uh, you know, where they know what they're doing isn't really appropriate in certain situations, but they do it anyway, cause it's their job. And I think in the same sense, when we talk about, you know, people developing weapons of war in certain ways, there's probably a lot of people who feel that they're working towards a net negative, but just don't feel like they can pick up and switch careers or do something different. And um, it was just a thought, so it wasn't really going anywhere. No, I think that's what I think that's that's worth uh, that's worth chasing the rabbit. Um, it's it's crazy because when we talk about these like monumental things like atomic weapons. But then you can also scale that same human behavior down from like the, the the largest of large geopolitical impacts and the decisions that these people make down to the the minutia of someone's everyday life. And I think that it is worth pointing out that some people I know a lot of people can convince themselves that they are doing good or they think that they're doing good, but or at I least think, kind of that lesser of two evils thing. Yeah. And that's and that's a that's a really interesting tangent too where it's like the lesser of two evils is still evil you know and that's and that was I've, I was having a conversation with a friend the other day about uh, we we're talking about politics and elections and he was he was he, he was an orange man bad type person right and he and he was trying to make these arguments why Biden was so much better than Trump and I think they're both shit. They're both war criminals. As far as I'm concerned, string them up both with their cabinets and let's just move on with our day. However, I, what, what jumped out to me is that when we were so, we were so focused on getting rid of Trump and we were so desperate to just return to normal quote unquote with American political discourse that we never stopped to think, 
is normal good, right? We never stop to actually think like, okay, it would be nice to get it'd be nice to get back to normal, but normal is shit. Yeah, the status say, the quo is absolutely is shit. Most people know that too and professed that all the time when George W. Bush was marching us into to foreign countries for 25 years to, to fuck up a bunch of goat herders. Uh, and people kind of knew this concept for a long time. And then all of a sudden when the new thing came, because it wasn't the new thing they specifically liked and the state propaganda was really good about getting behind how bad of a thing it was. Everybody kind of got to the point of like, ah, well, we need to get back to the regular kind of war criminals that we had in charge. Right. No, not, not the orange war criminals, just, <laughs> just the regular ones. And I think that that's like, it, it's such a shame though, because after Trump, I think that we had this really cool opportunity for American politics to shift and can take on a completely new paradigm and possibly for the better where it's like, Hey, look, okay. We had an outsider because the establishment is absolute shit, but we don't necessarily like Trump, but we also like having outsiders. So let's figure out a way to like take the good that we learned from Trump and apply it to the future. But we were just so desperate to get rid of the orange orangutan in the White House that we were we were just just salivating to return to normal. And we never stopped to think like, well, normal. What is is normal good? We never had that conversation as a country. I heard that the uh, orange orangutan is actually Melania's favorite sex position. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that just put a hell of an image in my mind. <laughs> you know, when there is this talk about returning to normal, I also think that there has always been a collision course that the American government has been on that just really can't be avoided. I mean, if we want to talk about you know taking lessons learned and you know getting outsiders into these positions. And, you know, I might be like a huge pessimist here. I just don't think it's going to matter in the sense of like, you know, we're on this economic collision course. There is not enough money. Like they're not going to be able to finance their spending. Um, and like that's going to the train is going to run out very quickly. And there might be a time when we have to make some uh, decisions about politics that are not going to be based in luxuries um, whatsoever. That's very odd to me, too. Do you think that they legitimately just don't understand that? Or do you think that they just don't care, have a contingency and yeah, it just doesn't matter for me because I'm one of the elites. I genuinely don't think that most of them understand that. Um, uh, you know, when you think about people in Congress and the Senate and they're, you know, adding things to these spending bills, are any of them thinking like, how is the treasury going to finance itself? <laughs> you know, we just signed 1.5 trillion. Like they don't even know what happens at the bond auctions. They don't even know how that gets sold. They just assume like, oh, well, people are buying the treasury bonds, right? We can just write whatever number we want down. But the issue is like the more they have to sell and the less demand there is, the higher interest they have to pay. Mm -hmm. And at $30 trillion, as interest rates creep up, you know, what's 1% of 30 trillion? It's 300 billion. Lucky, luckily for the Treasury Department, they don't have to deal with amortization whatsoever. Okay. I think they just need um, to talk to Trey Parker about the solution to this, and maybe uh, we find us our next Epstein character and just l have him buy up all of America's debt, and then when he kills himself, it's like, oh, sorry guys, <laughs> debt's gone. <laughs> Uh, yeah, I wish it was that simple. Man. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, outstanding debt, unfortunately, affects the, the value of the dollar regardless. And I think there's going to come a point in time, maybe very soon, or even the concept of just funding military activities will become extremely difficult. Um, there's just Especially not... other countries' military activities. 
Yeah, that's going to be one that has to go. Like, there's just not enough demand. And when you start running out of demand at the, the treasury level and the primary auctions, there's not much you can do except print money to cover it. And when you start doing that, things which I don't think there's any negatives to printing shit tons of money, right? We know no. any examples of that? I don't no, think that's I ever bad. That's uh, that's never been bad for anybody. Honestly, I can't really think of any examples. Why would it be a bad thing for us to have more money? Just print that <laughs> shit. Everybody gets everybody gets money. <laughs> when you ask the smartest college graduates, they all agree. <laughs> printing money isn't bad. Modern monetary theory. It was born in universities. Isn't that amazing that that people? And I'm not even like an extremely economic literate person. And when I hear modern economic theory, you're like, what are we peddling right now? Uh, it's crazy. Like these people have their noses so deep up all of their asses that you can be there for like nine or 10 years, come out of it with like a PhD in economics. And your primary thought process is like, we can just add more money to the money supply. Nothing bad's going to happen. They like, call that the uh, the elite human centipede of American academia. <laughs> that's a great metaphor. Ass in a circle. <laughs> wow. <laughs> That's fantastic. <laughs> also, weren't we supposed to talk about snowboarding? <laughs> like, no yeah, we uh, we ended guys. up awful pot political <laughs> all of a sudden. All of a sudden, classic us. Uh-huh. Who would have thought? We're gonna have an episode where we don't talk about politics. All right, whatsoever. fair enough. All right, <laughs> so sw- switching gears. Um, <laughs> yeah, I was actually really fascinated about this idea of you know the snowboard kind of. You had said that snowboards were actually saving the ski industry. Snowboarding saved the ski industry. I wanted to know why, but I also wanted to have the conversation here. So I sat and stewed on my curiosity for the last four hours. Okay. Please answer. How did snowboarding save the ski industry? Okay. So the ski industry is a very niche, um, white, historically, (laughs) (laughs) very white, very white thing. Um, So... You, you can really take um, I mean it was you know it's 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 a European thing but in the states it, it really stems from uh, the mountain division right that's kind of where ski patrol at least comes from is training the uh, the mountain division up in Colorado and then um, there's a gentleman who broke his leg and they realized that there was no good way to like get him off the mountain hence ski patrol but anyway like the ski industry in general was um, it was so niche and it was so narrow that it was hemorrhaging people, right? Like it, when it's expensive, mm-hmm. just look at where, look at where it is geographically. Um, you don't have a large population to pull from in your local sense. That's a good point. I never because thought about it. You don't have the, the you don't, you don't have, crowd. you don't have a lot of people near, and there's, there's places that are different, right? Like, like Salt Lake city is like, mm-hmm. like, like little, like the little big cottonwood canyons outside of Salt Lake city and the seven resorts. They're right there. Are the, all the runs like Mormon themed is it like personal planet <laughs> Avenue. No, it's not. Um, but, uh, but you know, with the exception of a few of these like major, like Salt Lake city is re- really one of the only areas that I'm aware of that has a huge population that is quickly accessible to it because even up in summit county right if you're if you're coming from denver you still have quite the drive to get to even your first resort which is winter park but then you have to continue another 40 45 minutes if the snow's bad and the roads aren't good you're looking at another hour and a half so you're looking at you know two and a half three hours to get to breckenridge vale keystone and they just keep you just keep tacking on 20 minutes to every town that you hit as you continue west i West on I-70. So originally, like, you don't have a large population to pull from for this sport because also, why do we have access to these mountains? They're all mining towns, right? 
Red River was an old mining town. That's why you have a road into this random crack in the earth that just happens to have a north-facing slope and it snows half the year, you know? And it's the same thing with all of the ski resorts in Colorado. They're all mining towns. Is that typical of all ski resorts? They are always north-facing? Uh, yes, that is. Yep. the best way to collect yep, the snow. Yeah, yeah, because the sun is in the, in the northern hemisphere runs on the southern oh, side of it and so a north yeah. facing aspect is shaded more and it holds snow longer okay yep so so you're looking so typically across the across the board in the north nor in the northern hemisphere your ski resorts are oriented east or sorry north and sometimes like oriental <laughs> yes <laughs> that's it um but there was there was this crisis um of of demographics first and foremost, but then there's also, I think that it's this untold phenomenon that we don't really take a lot of stock into, but it's kids rejecting what their parents are into. And this was, and this actually had a huge impact on the ski industry because it's, the kids aren't really into it because their parents are into it. Right. Mm -hmm. And they're like, Oh, well our parents are skiers and like skiing's dumb, you know? <laughs> and, and it, it is a real thing until that's an interesting dynamic too, because I've noticed that in recent years where it used to be everybody my age, but especially younger were all snowboarders. And now the people my age are snowboarders with kids, and, and those, those kids are skiers. and those kids are skiers. That's right. Which is where I was going to get to is that every it, that you have this demographic shift now with every generation where the where the kids are rejecting what their parents were doing, and so <laughs> snowboarding when it comes out actually revitalized the ski industry and got an entire group of kids that were never going to be snowboarders into into like out onto the mountain and, and you there. also helped and you also helped bring a bunch of people from the periphery that was already kind of using the same motion right like surfing you had skateboarders you have all of these people that are already used to facing sideways already used to carving in different ways that and but you know for the initiated you don't ski and snowboard the same way um so this this push into snowboarding really helped bring a whole new revitalization into the industry and what's and then then you get into like the early 90s i guess it's probably like the mid 90s and then you get this punk ass mogul skier from canada called jp Claire, who actually ends up creating armada skis right that's his company um and he kind of pioneered this this idea into freestyle because snowboarding had been more of the cool hip thing to do, right, but he is, it, but he's now likes. of this generation that's rejecting snowboarding. And now he's, he's kind of in this, he's a tweener, so to speak in terms of like years, but there's this punk ass mogul skier from Quebec, all of a sudden who just starts jumping and doing things with the skis that nobody had ever seen. And he's doing these grabs and he's twisting in the air and he's and he and he, pioneers this really cool freestyle skiing which then which then's like compounds into what we have today but but to answer your question originally it was like ski industry was dying and it was snowboarding that kind of pushed this new um new life and energy and and opened it up also like snowboarding equipment is is proportionally a lot cheaper than ski equipment like i don't know i have never bought a pair of snowboard boots but my ski boots cost me damn near a thousand dollars oh jesus um you know and it's like i i i'm gonna guess you can probably get a very nice snowboard setup 
the whole thing Everything. for like the price of my boots. Wow. And, you know, I, I used to work in these things. I was on them 100, 120 days a year. So it was worth for me investing that much money. But there's also like this, like it's a lot cheaper to get into snowboard and then it's skiing. That's definitely true. It's way cheaper. So the whole phenomenon of these no snowboards on the mountains, essentially your shorts and your hair are too long. I don't like your ear being pierced. Pretty much. It's just <laughs> I think, I think there, I think there's definitely an aspect of, um, of the rejection of modernity when it comes to these skier only. Right. So yeah. like, like Taos mountain was a skier only mountain until 2000 and 2005, 2006. And it's really cool because of, of some of the people that I know up here pioneered freeing Taos, right? That's what they call it, free Taos. Yeah. Um, they pioneered the movement. And uh, two, two names that are just like worth shouting out, Michael Johnstone and George Medina, both of them passed last year. Um, but there's, there's these little cool stickers that you might see around this area that it's both of them holding snowboards. And they were the first two, when Taos finally allowed snowboarding and open, they were the first two on the, like, you know, that's pretty cool to be like, you're the first, I was the first the, person. Uh, don't you have a decal of that on your computer? I do. I see yeah, that? it's yeah. actually right over, um, it's on that speaker. Oh, so That's where I saw it, yeah, on the yeah. speaker. Yeah, it's right there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, it's pretty cool stuff. That it, it makes me think, too, of uh, the restaurant I work in. There's a lot of high school kids that work kind of part-time there. And that's the big thing now is uh, because dads got into Michael Jordan in the 90s and are wearing like long Nike Air Jordan shirt shorts, all the kids have like five-inch inseams. Short like shorts are coming all, back. All, <laughs> cat, all, the, all the thighs, baby. Thighs for days. That's a solid point because the definition of dad shorts changes every 20 years. It does. And you never want to be wearing dad shorts. I wonder if anybody's all. ever done the chart of like where the generational cutoffs are in the skier, snowboarder. Yeah, I'm not. I'm not sure, but I know that a lot of the... Like the generation that's older than me, there are a lot of snowboarders, but then their kids who are younger than me are all skiers. Yeah, you know, and it's yeah, like, all, like almost all I don't the kids know. I saw. Today I bet to say you have a lot more skier skiers out there today. Um, yeah, I saw very few kids snowboarding, which was interesting to me. I was expecting to see a lot more of that. because ten years ago you would have saw a lot more snowboarder kids. So you thought you were cool when you got into snowboarding, and now you snowboard by, and all these kids are like, "Look at that fucking dork guy." <laughs> <laughs> Dweeb. No, that's a fair point because I started snowboarding about 10 years ago, really like 2014. And there were a lot of people snowboarding at like a younger age. I tried to actually switch over to snowboarding when I was like 16 because all the cute girls were snowboarders. What? And I was like, I'm the only dork on skis <laughs> out here. And then I, I realized it was probably cooler to be the better skier than any of the snowboarders than the worst snowboarder in the group. That's fair. So I finally just switched back about midway through the first day. I was like, "Good Fuck for you, this thing. This Good thing for you. sucks." I'm gonna have to rethink my slurs because I've always made fun of skiers for just being dorks and dweebs. It's like, oh, you're not cool enough to snowboard, huh? But like, realistically, I'm just an old man. I thought That's I looked. I thought on. I looked pretty cool out there. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you and that snowboarder <laughs> that had your exact ski outfit on. I should have pushed him down. <laughs> he, st he stole my kit. <laughs> that was pretty hilarious because it's not like you had this. It wasn't like you were wearing a costume. Or you had like a very specific like reference outfit. Like I'll wear a lot of times my puffy red jacket with my Cartman beanie. And people were like, oh, shit, it's Cartman. That's cool. But you'll, <laughs> every once in a while you'll see another Cartman on the mountain. But you have like just a, a pair of pants that go nicely with a different green colored jacket. And that gentleman shopped on the exact same website you did somehow. I know. We had different, we had different pants. I, I looked at them. That didn't look that <laughs> way to would. any of us. <laughs> I think Matt looks at most guys' pants to check them out. 
Just no, there's nothing wrong with that. <laughs> See what they're working I mean, with. Matt's probably thinking to himself, can I split them? <laughs> <laughs> can I go under that A-frame? <laughs> that was pretty impressive. I definitely don't have the knees to sit down on the skis. That looks so fun. I see Bill, that one guy did it in front of us on the lift where he just laid down and like stretched his, his back and his uh, quads out. I was like, man, that would look great if I didn't have to take my skis to get back. Like if my skis have to come off for me to get back. <laughs> to get back up. Point. Yeah. <laughs> so one thing I wonder, we can maybe intertwine politics and snowboarding here um, or politics and mountain sports. Um, it feels like this industry is going to struggle in a significant inflationary environment for a lot of different reasons. Um, Definitely. Uh, you know, on top of like paying staff to come out here, um, figuring out like what level you can pay someone. We're living in a ski town. It's expensive. It's expensive. The food's expensive. The gas is expensive. Everything's expensive. Yeah, everything's Nothing's expensive. Nothing's cheap in a ski town. Appreciate yeah, that, Joe. It's all got to be driven up here. And like the roads to get up to Angel Fire here are, am I allowed to say that? I don't know. Um, if if not, I'll I'll be I'll bleep right, it right, out. Cool. It's fine. I guess we'll bleep it. We'll decide. But the roads to get up here are thin and narrow, and you're climbing uphill, and eventually the center line just kind of disappears, and you just kind of have to assume you can fit. So there's no 18 wheeler coming up here. It's like a box truck at best, and that's um, that's, that's a lot. Make goods go up. Yeah, it's significantly more expensive. You have to make more trips, paying for more gas. Uh, less gets in there. It's less efficient, um, and you know you do have to wonder. Let's say inflation continues or continues to escalate as today we came out with another 7.9% print. Um, what impact does this have when people have less disposable income to come and ski? And at the same time, you know, you want to pay people more to incentivize them to keep working here. You know, what does that look like in the future? Yeah. Um, one second. Hey, can we charge this thing with that thing plugged in? Uh, okay. Okay. I'm guessing cool. we can cut this section out, right? Yeah. Yeah. No. Oh, okay. Well, cool. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I think. Well, I'll just carry on the conversation. I moved that charger. Um, it, it's it should be in the it should be in the living room. Um, sorry, we got a low we got a low battery on a on a computer. But oh uh, shit. Yeah. Sorry. I wasn't. I was listening to you, but I just want to make sure that we don't. It just doesn't die mid recording. No, that's us. fair. Um, and I was only really talking just in case, like we didn't have the ability to pause. Yeah. You know? I, I appreciate I appreciate that, dude. I try to avoid the dead space for the most part. Yeah, no, that's uh, I I, I really appreciate that. The dead dead space on podcasts, I absolutely hate. Where it's just like, uh, okay, but I think that that's that's I mean that's definitely one of the concerns that I have um, long term, even in the short term, because my business is directly tied to tourism and second homeowners and stuff like that. Um, I have learned though that that this that, that ski towns tend to be a little. Um, they they seem to be the last um, one of the last areas that really gets hit hard by inflation because you have to because even though that like yeah prices are going up and everything gets more expensive especially like when it comes to housing the people that can afford a second or third home in the mountains that oftentimes has a higher purchase price of their very nice house in a main metropolitan area right like especially over the last two years with what real estate has done in this market um and i won't bore everybody with like the the 10 years of of, of the local real estate market but but we had uh, essentially it was like a rubber band that finally let loose and prices caught up um for several reasons but but they but then they started to accelerate probably past what they should have or not i don't know right because 
value is set by buyers and sellers agreeing on a price. I think that's like the easiest way that you can determine value. What's a buyer willing to buy? What's a buyer willing to pay for? What's a seller willing to let it go for? But oftentimes, the second homeowners up here are not going to be the first that, that really feel the pinch when it comes to inflation. Now, I think that there will probably be a market correction up here that in the next 12 to 18 months, you're going to see some people just letting go of an asset because, well, we don't want it. We don't want the carrying cost. Um, but it's also appreciated pretty decently in that time. So they can at least walk away in a decent position. But um, I, I do wonder that. But historically, though, I think ski towns are a little bit insulated from the immediate effects of, of inflation just because of the clientele, right? Your second, like, think of the house that we're staying in. Think of the other homes that, you know, it's like these people aren't, when, when gas goes up to $5 a gallon, eh, it's, not, it's not the first thing that they're thinking, oh, well, maybe we should unload right. the vacation home. <laughs> but I, I got to beg the question, though, because, I mean, the people owning second homes up here, what percentage of the volume of people on the lifts are second homeowners and this level of person? And what percentage of people on the lift is someone who's like, I'm driving my kids out here because the plane is expensive and, you know, five of us can afford to yes. sit in this car at once. Um, you know, this is my one All vacation of for Texas, the year. That's, no, no, that's you make a really good point. And that's the counter. That's the counterweight to your owners. Right. Because I would say that if you had to just pull a if you had to just like pull a random number, I would say it was probably about 90 to 94% of the skiers up here are out of towners that don't own property. They're up here to vacation because it's spring break. They're not property owners and they're not locals. I would say, I'd say it's probably 90%, which then begs the question of like what happens when those people can't afford to pack up. And I think that's, that's, that is the, that is the, the fickle thing about these ski towns because it's a luxury being able to pack up your, your car, drive hundreds of miles into a place that it's snowy to slip and slide down, essentially controlled fall down a, down a mountain. That is a luxury, right? And I know that people, you know, like we're, we're living large and, um, your boy put in a lot of work for us to live large (laughs) right now, but, uh, your average person is paying out the ass for our experience right now, mm-hmm. I mean, I know that like people for the same stay that we're in here, someone's dropping seventy five hundred dollars right. for us to stay. You know, for them to do what we're doing right now, yeah, they're spending seventy five hundred dollars on this place. Not to mention rentals for the kids and themselves and all of the meals and the lift tickets. I mean, it easily becomes a ten thousand dollar week mm-hmm. right here. Easily, easily. I wonder if the the solution to that is, I mean, I know y'all had done some some work up here and like at least trying to flesh out the possibility of some affordable living just to to have the employees to work the mountain. Uh, I wonder, I mean, that's almost what you need to look towards in in a future where you may not have sustainable out-of-town markets. Maybe you need to just have your own self-generating economy here and you need to figure out how to, what kind of industry can we do alongside of skiing? Yeah. Maybe it's downing trees. I don't know that how easy that is in the mountains. Yeah, there's. I mean, there's. That is. Um, this is a really interesting conversation. I'm more than happy to chat about it. Um, that is that. That's that. That's that really hard thing. That's like, wh- how do you pivot, right? Because the problem is, 
our local population is it's very seasonal. Now, the nice thing, COVID actually did this area very well. A lot of when people realize that they can work from home and they don't have to be in the office, they don't have to be in in Houston and Austin when it's a hundred when it's a hundred degrees outside and the humidity is super high. It's like, well, we can actually hang out up here in the mountains and it's 75 and pleasant, you know? Um, so, so COVID actually did us well with, with, uh, shortening our shoulder seasons because when I first moved up here eight years ago it was dead the day the ski resort closed I mean you had two months of nothing to do there's no one in town only locals and then same same as soon as the bike park closed but we've seen we've we've seen our shoulder seasons start to really really shrink where it's only a couple where it's maybe like three four weeks in each um on each sides of it, but that's the that was the whole thing. I sat in on this this think tank that uh, it was two years ago, and it was from these. It was a think tank out of Albuquerque, and it was essentially like how how do we grow or how do essentially do we double our population? Because doubling the population puts you in an area where you're not so dependent on the seasonal swings of what's going on with, with the resort is, is it a good snow year? Is it not, mm-hmm. is, you know, or the, you know, and that was kind of the thing. It's like, you essentially, we need to double our population to do so. And there was a lot of different ideas about it, but the, the issue is that there's, there's not a lot of manufacturing capabilities. One, because transport out is so radically expensive, uh, yeah. you know, it's like, there's only, there's only three ways in and out and there's, you know, and, you can't you can't get that double you know there's no trains coming in here the nearest train stations and you know it's an hour and a half away is your nearest train like yeah sure we have a runway but how cost effective is it to fly out your widgets fly lumber out you know and so that's like you know you could do lumber um the national forest is definitely an option and that's something we thought about but i don't know if you can put the entire town to work in in lumber you know it it, it is it is an interesting you almost are talking about that investment of, uh, and I, I kind of got into that with somebody online. It's at least uh, some of the smarter people will go to roads when you talk about anarchy, <laughs> and it, it, it's at least more simple than like, well, the government protects us and spends our money the right way. Uh, but maybe that's kind of the initial investment that needs to happen. Is somebody needs to kind of step up and be like, I'm saving this, or we as a community are saving this by building a highway that is accessible enough to actually export something yeah but that's uh, that's not an option up here yeah i was about to say there's a question of geography you know if you don't have any suitable pass that's wide enough and you know the road we drove in there's no way to widen that road there's no way i didn't see any room. like take a and lot you guys, of and that road is made. a lot nicer than it was two years ago <laughs> i can tell you <laughs> that is interesting yeah it's tough to well because and the thing is is like with the geography here is like south there's a very tight canyon you know, um, there's another entrance on the south, like from that same road that you guys came in. There's another road that runs in there, but that one's even tighter and smaller and is pretty much impassable in the wintertime. Mm. Um, and so then if you start heading out north, now you have three ways out of here. You can head west through a canyon. You can head straight north over a pass, which then takes you through another canyon, which then at that point you're kind of in open terrain and can go, or you have to head east through a canyon. You know, there's no, there's no way in or out of this place without going over a pass or going through a canyon. So it sounds like we need an artificial market for artistic goods so we don't have to ship out tons and tons of lumber. Even then, it's still a question of, 
you know, how do you get someone to want to be here when, you know, we're talking about this geography and like just going anywhere else from here, it's a chore. It's you a know, chore. It sounds like an absolute chore. It and is. <laughs> that's why, that's why we don't go anywhere. Yeah. <laughs> you just learn, you just learn to live with it. Yeah, I wouldn't either. Um, and uh, you know, I just lost my train of thought. So if anyone wants to hop in, there's, <laughs> there was a point here, but it's falling yeah, out. Well, right. so I guess back to what you're saying, it's like, yeah, you do need, you do need the private investor to really like help galvanize and jumpstart this community. Um, however, the problem is that any, any significant jumpstarting of this community is still going to be tourism based. Yeah. Just because there's no, there's like really nothing yeah, like, like sort of like bringing in a call center and you know, <laughs> like, like there's, like there's really not a lot of things to do a, up here. Not an industry we're really looking up to open offices in the u.s we kind of like to pay people yeah you, for you that. outsource that and so so there's not really like even even any electricity here is probably expensive as well maybe it's not cheap maybe yeah, we need to look to the future we're thinking too old school here maybe this needs to become the mecca for OnlyFans girls uh to produce their product even then you're better off doing that in bulgaria somewhere electricity is like dirt cheap because like where are y'all getting your electricity from there's obviously no dams there's I didn't uh, the mountain gods actually supply yeah. power to the <laughs> yeah. area. <laughs> yeah, so um, that's a, that's a really good question. So there's a cooperative that has a monopoly on the entire area. That's necessary in an area yeah. like this. Yeah, well, because you're not going to find a lot of people that are actually willing to, you know, bid that job. That is something that's really interesting too. This like the side tangent that is political, but it's also like very applicable in real life. Is I'm I'm heavily involved with like EMS in this area, and one of the arguments that I heard when because um, I'm I'm trying to I'm on this coalition to try to form like a county EMS right because essentially this is a very large county in terms of its uh, geography and its square mileage, but you end up having only one, two, three communities providing EMS services at the expense of those communities for the entire county. And so I think that it's like one of the one of the better ways to go about it is just like create a countywide EMS, right? And that's that's one of those things that yeah, sure we can talk about defund the police, but when you call 911 because you can't breathe and you're going into anaphylactic shock or you're watching your husband go into congestive heart failure and he's now spitting up pink sputum, you want someone to show up. You know, and I've heard people like, oh, well, you're an anarchist. Well, you just privatize it. But the problem is you're never going to get any private entity to ever come out here and work it because there's the call volume doesn't make sense. Like there's no economic model to make a private ambulance service work. There's like none. Yeah. It there's, starts with low hanging fruit and you guys are not low. hanging. We are not low hanging <laughs> fruit. We are the furthest. We're, we're actually some of the top branches uh -huh. and you have to climb over, you have to climb over several like decent branches and then some pretty damn good branches mm -hmm. to get to us before. And it's like, that's a, you really got to want that fruit. And it doesn't matter how good your intentions are the economic model's not there. And so that's one of those like tricky things up in these areas that sometimes that is, that is the necessary evil. I'm learning that you sometimes ha just have to play in the system that you have, right? Like it makes much more sense for us to um, go to a countywide EMS service and actually have every single citizen of the county have a real buy-in every year in the form of those goddamn taxes versus having three communities pay for EMS for the rest of the community and hope that you get some sort of collection off the insurance. Right. So here's the question I had earlier that I forgot. 
you know, most ski towns start as mining towns, right? Is that industry completely dead here or does it still operate? So there used to be one mine that was north of Red River. They uh, mined um, malignum. I think, yeah, yeah, that's it, malignum. And it's a, uh, it is a additive into, it's like a, it's, a, it's an alloy hardener. It's a lot more active than benignum. <laughs> <laughs> I think you meant molybdenum. Is that it? Uh, M-O-L-Y-B-D-U-M. Okay, sorry. N-U-M. <laughs> the, sorry. No, no, no. So, I don't no, know how to pronounce the word either, but you're saying it like it's cancerous. Oh, okay. <laughs> no, that's that's malignant. <laughs> <laughs> that's what you said, right? No, <laughs> but close. <laughs> malignum. Malignum. Uh, I'm sorry. I but no, 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 that's okay. It's like words. <laughs> we, both, we both picked that up. Words are hard. Um, but anyways, that there used to be a mine up there, um, and it was a Chevron mine. But now they've rec- they've they've uh, enacted the reclamation process, so that mine's now shut down, which is creating some jobs because that's going to be something that's got to be cleaned up in perpetuity. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm sure that will never be cleaned, you know. But mining in this area is all but dead. Yeah, and I imagine there's not a lot of demand from people who live here now for that sort of industry to come in, right? Yeah. Yeah, mm. especially if you're a family, uh, the reputation of miners is not what you want around your kids most of the time, not to uh, belie the reputation of miners, but it's kind of the same thing as like if you're in a port city and you're like, let's not go to the sailor bar. Right. That's tough. So it feels like the only real draw here is just mountain it's, activity. It's right? tourism. That is it. And any, in, in any serious investment that you put into this community is going to be tourism based mm-hmm. what other types of tourism are there that can occur around a mountain that maybe y'all are looking to explore so there's definitely so you have just like your immediate um mountain activity but then you get you know like now you get like mountain bikers that come that want to come in and we have a trail system that we're working on actually like developing so it's so it's more like a destination where you don't have to just go like go ride the bike park but there's decent trails that you can just go pedal um we're working on expanding ATV and UTV access into the national forest. Um, but it's all still, it doesn't matter what, it doesn't matter what it is. Like, I mean, I guess you have like hiking and that's free, but you know, it's like fishing. There's, there's a, there's several lakes in the area that you can go fish, but I was about to ask what it, it seems like a lot of that's targeting the younger generations, of course, cause you need people who are able-bodied enough to ride a bike yeah, down a mountain. They want to, yeah, they want to actually be outside and go do things. And so you can expand into other areas of tourism and outdoor activity, but there's not really much outside of that. And let's let's be honest about like mountain biking is even more expensive than um, skiing is. I spent more on a mountain bike than I did on a dirt bike. And that thing has an engine, you know. <laughs> um, and so even so even then you're still looking at a luxury like like I live in a town of luxury. That there's no other way around it. Sounds like like this need whole some more like college-based shake your titty festivals up here to bring them in. <laughs> I, Honestly, that, wouldn't, that wouldn't hurt my feelings. That's not a bad idea. I had some friends who lived in Crested Butte, and they had some really weird holidays that just that city um, participated in. Like there was one where it was like. Um, all the like the young women and young men came out and there was like a kissing and like a green fairy or something. I don't remember <laughs> anyone who lives there is probably like screaming at me. Like, you know, this was eight years ago. I, I don't remember the details, but they it's had a, a number. Ogre. They had a number of like almost felt like pagan holidays. And, you know, it could be interesting for an area like this to set up like a summer fest or something where like, you know, like here's a week where everyone comes up and, you know, does some goofy ass shit. Yeah, make your make your own kind of Woodstock situation. Doesn't even necessarily have to be a music festival, but 
like uh, Ari Shafir is always pushing International Shroom Day, then maybe you have the International Shroom Festival in, in uh, up here. Oh, the the, the people in this community would never. Yeah, go it's, for a, it's it. a little yeah. little against the community's values. It's definitely the the median age of this community is sixty years old. <laughs> makes sense. It makes a lot of sense. Median and age. Wow. I'm, no, I'm dead serious. It, it's an old, it's get an a old more, town. Uh, participation in that voluntary EMS system. With that being said, you would think so. <laughs> well, no, actually, I will say, dude, the, the people of this community stepped up, uh, donated. Uh, we just bought a new pumper tender, which is uh, it's like essentially it's a fancy water truck fire fire thing. Um, Three hundred and forty six thousand dollars, a hundred percent community funded. All right, there we go. I mean, that's not bad. It, uh, so there is buy-in, but at the same time, like if community's generosity and how you know that's a one-time buy-in, you're talking about sustaining that. Yeah, to that's keep that going. Yeah, that's that's and the to tricky pay part. Salaries and mm-hmm. all the things. Yes. Yeah, yeah I, I think that's like. But back onto like that that grander conversation that we were having earlier. I think there's a real crisis of ski towns that are that's coming up in the next decade right like like we're a little bit behind the curve where there's still like this is an interesting area because unlike a lot of ski towns that are just cracks in the earth we actually have like open terrain that you can build and develop um a lot of ski towns you're maxed out right you have your crack in the earth and that's all you can build in but still um you have the you a lot have, of oligarchs in Russia that have some money clearing up that they probably need to spend. No, bring it on, dude. I'll, we'll take your dirty money here. <laughs> <laughs> We're not above it. You can uh, you can find me on the you can find me on the website of the town government. Talk about uh, changing the culture of the city here. <laughs> yeah, right. Hit hit me up and bring up bring those Russian strippers with you. <laughs> uh, but but there's like this true true crisis because it's like one housing prices are just skyrocketing like the median home sale in Breckenridge in two, in 2021 oh, was over a million dollars mm. and that's i mean we're, you're looking at condos you're looking at all i mean like you're not finding a condo for cheaper than $750,000 in Breckenridge and that's a shithole of a condo it's not even that nice <laughs> mm-hmm. um, but you know so it's like one they're completely unaffordable and so then your local workers are displaced to uh, you know your peripheral areas but the problem is a lot of these places don't have anywhere to displace them like Colorado like Summit County has Leadville okay well you gotta now go over a pass now the Imagine price in Leadville. in Leadville yeah it, it's an old it's, it's, it's asbestos town down the way <laughs> <laughs> Fair enough. Um, but then you also have like Crested Butte. They displace all their workers to Gunnison. But now Gunnison's too expensive. Where do you displace people from Gunnison? You have no place to move them. Right? And it's like Montrose is way too far of a drive. And so it, it doesn't matter. Like every ski town has its own unique challenges over the next decade. And I think one that you have to take into consideration that no one wants to talk about is climate change. And I'm not saying I don't know what's going to happen in 10 years, but I can tell you historically watching the snowfall of northern New Mexico over the last 30 years, it, it is it is a lessening average. Every, you know, if you look at the snow, the snowpack of 30 years ago versus what you have today, it is a lot less. And it was and it was less five, you know, and it's like every year, even though we might have some good years here and there, the trend is downward and who knows what happens and. 10 years whether that corrects itself but at the same time it's like you've got to start thinking about that too what happens to your ski town when you can't ski 
Yeah, it's interesting when we bring up climate change, too, because I, I think there's a lot of people who will dig in their heels just at the mention of the word mm -hmm. um, because it's so politically charged. But realistically, like charts are charts. Math is ma math is math. I mean, if you look at it, you can tell these things are changing. And right. I think anybody often, who has like a, an intelligent pushback to it is more based on the argument of like, we're not affecting it as much as you think. I know I listened to uh, Dr. Coonan wrote a book recently on that, uh, and it's you know, the the opus of it is like, well, it's not that the climate isn't changing. It's that there are these natural ebbs and flows and we haven't been recording it long enough to like actually know what those ebbs and flows are and to know the effect that we have on it. Yeah, most definitely. We have like a massive dearth of data, which is natural. Like satellites have only been up since the 60s um, and reliable documentation that can actually be used for anyone to make any sort of analysis is maybe the 20s, the 10s, it depends. Um, that's just 100 years. You can't even guess what a 100-year storm looks like with 100 years of data. You need five or 600 years of data. Mm -hmm. And, you know, a lot of people are working it from this sense of, like, I have a conclusion based on what I'm seeing here. It's like, but you can't really make one from what you're seeing. And when they we had talk the, about... 100-year uh, storm was a big talking point in... Uh, or 100-year flood they would have in New, the New Braunfels mm -hmm. area that I lived in. And within... Three years of me living there, I lived through 200-year floods. <laughs> yeah. I mean, insurance adapters don't really know what to do. And when we start talking about, like, snowfall up here on the mountain and what the future looks like and how we have to think about it, um, I think realistically we need to be thinking about, you know, creative solutions based around the trend instead of, you know, everyone's trying to think about, like, how can we change the trend? Um, and, you know, they think about it all wrong, you know, decrease carbon, decrease this, that. And like, we really don't know yet. And, you know, I spent most of my career, you know, being just harassed by this data over and over and over again. Um, but we truly don't know. And honestly, for those of you who don't know, he used to be in charge of disposing the excess oil from BP into the coast. Uh, yeah, yeah. And most of it just went in my closet, you know, <laughs> I didn't know where to put it. <laughs> he had a really big closet. <laughs> Huge closet. Yeah, but it, it's it's interesting because once we really start focusing on like how do we live with this and how do we actually solve for it, I think we start being productive again. Because uh, right now everyone just wants you to like stop eating, stop driving, uh, stop breathing, and um, uh, you know realistically, the, we we should be avoiding pollution in general. Like, you know, you clean up your apartment because it's better clean, not because you're worried your heating bill is going to go up. Um, you don't dump or you shit don't in clean the, your apartment out of spite for your girlfriend, not because of the cleanliness. Of it's it. her job, anyways. <laughs> <laughs> but you know, when it comes to emissions, like we should really just be thinking about human health. You know, like I like breathing. That yeah. should be like the end. Air of the on the the flip side of that, I mean, the the majority of emissions are coming from countries that are still developing. And there's a pretty good argument to be said that you know their health and their wellness and their prosperity might be better throwing these emissions into the, the climate because they need to develop their country and their infrastructure. It's a tough line to balance because if you ask yourself, what was the uh, life expectancy in China in the 1980s? Low. And then you look at like what it is now and consider the fact they're usually dying six or seven years earlier due to respiratory issues caused from the way they generate electricity. It probably is still like a net benefit for them. Um, but then again, there's the question of our children, right? We were talking about the nukes earlier and you might do something that's expedient for you in the moment, but then, you know, 70 years from now, what does that world look like if you're still, you know, kind of set up in the same paradigm that you've always been in? And I don't have an answer for China. I don't know what they need to do. It's, you know, it's a, it's a them problem. It's not an us problem. But, you know, when we start thinking about the mountain again, 
if we assume that we can't actually change trends in snowfall, which is a reasonable assumption, how do we work around it? Like, yeah, I don't know. I mean, that's, um, thank God we have a bike park, you know, <laughs> start putting those it, rubber pellets. Down. It's like, you know, but that's, um, I think that's a really, I think this last Olympics, I didn't watch it. I, I definitely, I refuse. I, I definitely boycotted. I, yeah, I boycotted out of I de- uh, I solidarity with boy- Ukraine myself. <laughs> Indeed. <laughs> <laughs> I definitely boycotted for Ukraine. Um, but, um, I think one of the more interesting things that I was I was reading about that also happened when the Russian Olympics were held in Sochi is that you have all of this man-made snow to actually have this event, right? Well, that was actually a big and issue they had in Beijing this year, apparently, because they it was had all, it tons was, and tons of man-made snow, and then it snowed. And that, oh, it actually that really snowed. Adverse uh, reactions to it, apparently. Oh well, yeah, they don't mix well. Yeah, honestly. I think they had a lot of injuries this um, year. And and I'm sure that they skimped. And you know, there's like there's like a real science to snowmaking. There's there's some kiwis that work over at Red River, and that's what they do. They work year round. Like they come up here in the they come up here in in the northern hemisphere winter and make snow. Sure, you and then they go and then they go down to the southern hemisphere, usually somewhere in Argentina or Chile, like some <laughs> of those kiwis are, and they just make snow year round. <laughs> And there, there's there's some pretty cool kiwis, but um, but there's like a real science to it, right? Like your temperatures matters, your your humidity matters, the moisture content mm-hmm. of your snow matters. It all plays a very important factor before it actually hits the ground and you start sliding around on it. But what I don't think a lot of people understand is that how much water it it sucks up. And I think that that's like a lot, cause I hear that all the time where it's like, Oh, we'll just man make snow. And it's like, but you don't understand how much water goes into pumping out of those things to make it to where you even have like the, we call it the white ribbon of death, you know, at the, at the start of the ski season before it actually is snowed and the ground starts to fill out. But you have just like, you're skiing on this little white ribbon of man-made <laughs> snow and it's dirt right next to you. That was like Thanksgiving in Red River. That's how it was it's not like super forgiving it's not and and the snow is not great either but no but people don't understand how much water it takes you that that big old water tank that we we're that you saw on the backside yeah. that thing it gets you nowhere <laughs> you can't you can't cover you you cover one percent of that mountain if you drained it from top to bottom wow it is like it, it takes an exorbitant amount of water and so now when we start getting into this well what is the highest and best use of water is man making is man-made <laughs> snow going to make the cut because they had to man-make snow all for the entire Beijing Olympics. Same with the Sochi Olympics, right? It yeah. did not snow all that much. So they're using extraordinary amounts of water. I mean, it's millions and millions of gallons of water to, to, to have these, you know, and that's the, it's like, what's going to be the highest and best use of water for recreation you know, and I think that's going to be that's that's going to be a tough, tough like coming to Jesus moment that ski towns are going to have to deal with, right? Because when you have X amount of water rights, and New Mexico doesn't have a ton of water to begin with, mm-hmm. probably hard to drill into aquifers here too, where that's kind of what gets done in the farmlands out in West Texas where we grew yeah, up. Yeah, but, like, but they're draining that too. It's a long and when the Ogallala day. runs out, which it's which uh, is on its which, way, which is which is rapidly approaching. Mm-hmm. What do you do then? Because the Ogallala is not going to recharge. That is a thing that took millions of years to right. collect. And when it is gone because of center, center pivot irrigation <laughs> in a fucking place that you shouldn't be growing corn and cotton. <laughs> well, that water is not yeah, coming back. A, a land that is too dry for cotton. 
Yeah, when we start talking about the uh, the game theory and choices that we're making with water, um, there's definitely been a lot of stupid choices. That's for certain. Definitely. And I will be the first to admit that make, man-making snow, even though it is very beneficial for my immediate life, is not good for maybe even like the long-term well-being of the community. Even though the economic means of the community might dry up if there's no ski mountain, but at least you can drink water. Here's a question. There's 20 of you that are left. <laughs> so, right. Man-made snow, it melts, right? It does. It turns into regular water? Or yeah, and yeah, it, it, yeah, it all it just runs. And, but, you know, like your runoff. But, you, but I think people, uh, people overestimate the amount of recharge that you get from that, right? It's like yeah, how much you're going to get you're going to get area. you're going to get a lot of evaporation, but off but what you're really going to see is like yeah, there's going to be some that soaks into the ground to actually recharge your water table, but the vast majority of it is going right off the mountain into the Sinegia Creek, all the way down to Eagle Nest Lake, and it's going into the Cimarron and it's on its way to, uh, it's on its way to the Canadian and it's on its way to the Gulf. Uh, that's a good point. So most of it just kind of most of it just kind of most of it's just kind of it it, it runs so and in, it's gone. In exchange for being annexed back into Texas, we can build this pipeline that pumps water from the coast back <laughs> up here. If you guys would be so <laughs> kind to deliver us from the tiny tyrant that we have now. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I mean, we got like a few more years before Texas turns into a, a place of tiny tyrants as well. Yeah. So, uh, you know, you'd really just be jumping out of the pot and into the fire, man. Well, you know? if, it, if it's a faster death, then so be it. You know? <laughs> as long as I can ski my way to it. You're right. Yeah. <laughs> it's it's going to be, I mean, the, the game theory choices are really interesting because we're going to have to start making tough decisions. And, and I think that's one thing that, um, and we can just kind of wrap up on this because I know Logan just looked at his phone again. Um, it's going to be, it's going to be really interesting. Are we, are we going to be willing to make the harder choice today for the benefit of ourselves even tomorrow, right? Because the choices that we make in the next decade in this community are going to, you know, cause I would like to be living here in 30, 40 years. I don't know where else I would go. I don't know what else I would do. I, I love this place. You just move back to Lubbock. I would really prefer not to. <laughs> I would really prefer not to. I think I'd rather die in the apocalypse. They're short. Here. They're short on uh, bike courses up there. Uh, I'm sure they are. Um, <laughs> but you know, it's like, is this is this community willing to make those tougher short term sacrifices just for the betterment of the long term, even of our own community, let alone the the enchanted circle, let alone this the northern part of New Mexico. The land of enchantment. Oh, that's an interesting point. I was wondering about cloud seeding as well, but even then, if we start thinking long term, you just end up with a bunch of heavy metals. You know, even if you do end up getting the snow, long enough over a long enough time period, it just kind of accumulates in the ground table as well. It seems like there is no good solution for bringing water or snow to a place that doesn't want it. And, and that's um, why you guys should buy your lift tickets right now because you don't have that much longer to keep skiing, apparently. Yeah, it could fair. be. <laughs> you know, you just never know. Enjoy the world around you while it's here. You know, it's not permanent. We have this normalcy bias where we expect that um, whatever is here will be here in 10 years. And you can skip out on all the things you want to do because it'll be here in 10 years. And in truth, it won't. Things come and go all the damn time. Uh, even the Sahara is starting to disappear. It's being reclaimed. It's turning green again. So that happens like 11, every 11,000 years for some reason. Yep, yep. Soon that desert's going to be a jungle, and eventually that jungle's going to turn back into a desert again. Maybe that's tomorrow night's uh, conversation since we're talking about shifting climates and the uh, younger, driest 
region the last time it was I a would green over love there. to talk about oh, that all right that. i think we have our next episode well, i appreciate <laughs> you guys listening i hope this was as fun for you guys as it was for us we did this podcast meetup and we wanted to see each other in person and actually uh do a podcast that wasn't exclusively on zoom uh it felt like it was kind of nice about not talking over each other we we had a couple moments where we probably talked into each other but it, it seemed a lot more copacetic on understanding when without a one second delay uh, <laughs> when my turn to talk was it's my turn now <laughs> but we're going to try to pump out some of these for you guys like i said matthew and i've been bouncing this around for a while that we want to branch out a little bit and, and have more general conversations that aren't just 100 percent uh research-based political topics we're still going to bring you guys that material as well um, but let us know reach out to us see, uh, let us know if you guys like this uh if you're enjoying these episodes if you like see them steered in another direction uh or if you expected to like it and then we just talked about politics for 45 minutes instead and that annoyed <laughs> you a little bit uh i guess on that note flirt if you want to plug your stuff man uh cool well i'm flirt cheap it's one word you can find me on instagram uh at flirt cheap substack flirtcheap.substack.com I also run a podcast. I am a consummate English speaker who never trips up on his words. I also run a podcast with uh, Paul Meishner. It's called Thunderpunk Radio. Um, Thunderpunk is one word. Uh, radio is a second a second word. Um, you can find us on the internet. Um, we need to probably pump out episodes a lot more frequently. Uh, my life has been all over the place the last few months, so. Uh, uh, it's, it's been a little slow, but, uh, we'll get back to it real soon. But anyways, find me online. Um, for now, like I said, your normalcy bias one day, I'm going to disappear. <laughs> you don't want to say you missed it. And you guys aren't going to know how to get in touch with them, but we do. And it's your loss. That is a fair point. <laughs> I almost, uh, I almost dropped your name. I, really, I, I heard that, man. I appreciate that. But yeah, one day you read a flirt cheap post for the last time and you just didn't know it yet. Mm. Heavy thoughts. Heavy. Heavy thoughts. Go Heavy tell your heavy. mother you love her. <laughs> <laughs> no, that's that's some that's some real shit. I should text my mom. Um, yeah, but yeah, um, this I has also been... should text Matt's mom. <laughs> <laughs> Fair enough. Um, yeah, uh, I have no rebuttal to that. If you, if you so choose to, um, yeah. But uh, really pumped to be here doing this with you guys. This is fucking cool sitting here in a studio with microphones and headphones and we're looking at each other in person and it's not over zoom and we get to go i don't know go cook some dinner and then get in a hot tub and continue this badass vacation that we're mm. on together mm. so uh I like all those things with all of that being said logan carpenter matt billingsley mr flirt cheap we're coming to you from an undisclosed but very easy to figure out location <laughs> in new mexico i swear it's just like a google search away um, yeah we put enough clues here you yep. can probably find the street if you yep, if you now. really wanted to find us you could um, you could probably knock on matt's front door if you wanted to do you so really at your own risk though <laughs> at the, uh, with all with all sincerity right, true that true that I haven't told y'all. I got the sub gun in the trunk, and uh, you know, if we what's, still it, go what's shooting, it doing out there? Uh, it's just it, why is it not? Why is it not in here? Oh, it's just chilling out there. I was lazy. I don't want to bring in an extra. Fair bag. enough. Throw some targets in the trees. Yeah, I like it. We can, we can cruise up the national forest. I'm down. Um, I'm down. All right, let, let's cut this off before we like drag a personal conversation. All right, fair enough. Um, thank you guys for tuning in. This is Against the Mob. I